I want to just uh, piggyback briefly off of what Andre mentioned earlier this morning, and that is that next week is also a very, very special service. It's become a highlight of ours each year. It really is just a service of testimony, praise and testimony, as we recall and share what God has done in our lives individually and collectively. So I do encourage you to come and be part. Same time and place, 1030 next uh, Sunday. So look forward to seeing you then. And then welcome. Just I want to welcome you this morning. It's so good to see you all. Uh, I'm excited about the morning. Looking forward to what God has for us, what he's already shared with us. And uh, I believe there is, there's more to share. So with that, will you take your Bible, please, and uh, meet me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. Today is Christmas Eve, which means that tomorrow morning, people everywhere will greet the day with a sense of anticipation unlike any other day of the year. Children all over the world will wake up way too early to drag their droopy-eyed parents out of bed. I know this because I was once a child and because I am now a parent. I have been the one rushing into my parents' room before the first light of day, and I have been the parent with eyes half-masked being pulled from bed in a swell of uncontrollable excitement. The Christmas season is full of excitement and anticipation, which I believe can be summed up with one word, the word hope. Though different cultures and even different families within the same culture have different traditions during this time of the year, they all hope for something. Like the gift wrap that covers the gift inside, hope envelops everything about Christmas. This year in church, from the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel, we've spent the Sundays of December unwrapping this gift, if you will. After today, we will have looked into the lives of four people, or groups of people, as in as in the shepherd's case, who were given incredible revelation into the gift of Jesus Christ. And last week, Andre made the point about how God revealed Jesus in the most unlikeliest of ways to the most unlikely people. From a teenage girl in a podunk town, to Zechariah who wrestled with doubt, to lowly, no-name shepherds tending their flocks by night. Much of this, I imagine, has been very familiar to us. Though today we come to something perhaps a bit unfamiliar, or at least not as familiar. Today we come to consider a man named Simeon and his response to Jesus. I've never preached from this passage before, but my 
time spent in consideration of it this week has been rewarding. It has encouraged my faith, and I trust and pray that it will encourage yours also. For here we find that hopes which rest solely on Christ are fully satisfied in Christ. In this passage, we find the source of hope, the arrival of hope, and our response to hope, which I will cover under these three headings, the man Simeon, the child Jesus, and the human heart revealed. So I want to read this with you, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25 through verse 35. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, thank you for the joy of the day. We thank you for the joy of the Christmas season. We thank you for the joy of your word to us. We thank you for the joy of being able to gather at this time in this place to consider your word. We recognize that your word is true and it is life. And that's what we want today, truth and life. We're not not after a religious experience. We're after the true meaning of life in Jesus Christ. And so for this, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you come upon us? Would you enable our hearing of your word? Would you enable our receiving of your word? Would you enable our acting upon your word? We need help today, and we need hope in Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen. So verse 25 introduces us to this man, Simeon, and the 11 verses from 25 to 35 contain all we know of this man. This is the only record of this man, Simeon, in the totality of Scripture. But what a record it is. What an example Simeon is for us. What a picture of faith and faithfulness. He was a spirit-led man, notice, 
Three times Luke draws attention to the fact that Simeon was under the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen with his own eyes the arrival of the Lord's Christ, the Anointed One, the long-expected Savior sent from heaven by God Himself. Simeon didn't know when. He didn't know where. He didn't know how. But on that particular day, at that particular time of the day, in that particular place, the city of Jerusalem, all his hopes were satisfied in full as he looked upon that particular child, the Lord Jesus Christ. For years, presumably, Simeon had waited for the fulfillment of this promise, for the consolation of Israel. And this phrase, the consolation of Israel, refers to the time when the people of God who were suffering under the misery of sin and its consequence would finally receive and experience divine comfort by way of divine salvation. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this very thing over 700 years prior when he said in chapter 25, for example, that it will be said on that day, Isaiah is looking down the corridors of time. And he's envisioning the arrival of Christ. And he says that it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Simeon was waiting for the fulfillment of these things, for the consolation of Israel. And what makes his faith so exemplary is that his confidence lie not in what was going on in Israel at the time. Israel was a subjugated nation and in a state of spiritual decline. His confidence was not in Israel or the circumstances of the day or even his own ability or sense of righteousness, though he was a devout man. Indeed, and instead, Simeon's confidence was solely and squarely in God's promise to him that he would not experience death until he saw the advent of Christ. You know, traditionally, in the church calendar, the period of time that spans the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day is called Advent, which means arrival or coming. Advent is a time of waiting with anticipation for the coming of that day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus because the arrival of Jesus signals that God is faithful and hope in Christ is sure. I believe we are hardwired for hope. In fact, the language of hope, if we stop to think about it, seasons our conversations all the time. I hope to get that promotion at work. I hope to make varsity. I hope to pass that history test. Even simple things. I hope there's milk in the fridge. Or gas in the car. I hope to travel next year. I hope my health holds up. I hope my children turn out okay. I hope I don't fail them. 
I hope to not let others down. I hope I'm not let down. Instinctively, we all long for something more, for something better. God has created us this way. I think it's in our very DNA. And he's assured us that there is more to come, wonderfully so, than this, and that in this world of uncertainty, we can trust in him. But hope is not wishful thinking. Because wishful thinking relies on chance and the gamble that the odds will fall in our favor. Hope is not optimism. Because optimism looks at one's circumstance and merely chooses to see only the positive even when there is no positive. Biblical hope, however, is neither circumstantial nor a grasping at odds. Biblical hope has God in its view and therefore trusts in His character and in His word even when there's no evidence to suggest that things are getting better as in, this, as in Simeon's case, biblical hope rests in God all the more. God had promised consolation for Israel. Simeon expected that to happen despite all the evidence suggesting otherwise. Now listen, we must remember that 400 years of silence had passed since the last prophet had spoken. And yet Simeon, in his own personal walk with God, had heard God's Spirit speak, and that was enough. Because he knew God was faithful. When we sing, Great is thy faithfulness, as we did this morning, we're not only looking back at what God has done, but simultaneously looking ahead to what God will do because God's past faithfulness motivates hope for the future. And you get the sense that this looking back and forward at the same time is what this man Simeon was all about. And God kept His promise to this man known in history only because he waited patiently in hope. On that particular day, according to verse 27, Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, I want to just pause here. This is an aside. But what a great way to come into the place of worship, isn't it? In the Spirit. What a great encouragement for us. What if each of us entered the church each week willfully submitted to the Spirit's direction. Would that not change how we view one another? What we would say to one another? How we might serve one another and worship God with one another? Listen, I cannot help but think that Simeon's coming in the Spirit that day is what gave him eyes to see what the Spirit intended to reveal. Mary and Joseph were present also. Similarly obedient to the Lord, they were there to offer a sacrifice according to the custom of the law, which we read 
in verses 22 through 24, a sacrifice was required under the Mosaic law because Mary, after giving birth, would have been considered ceremonially unclean. The law stated that after 40 days, a sacrifice was to be offered while Jesus, the firstborn son, was to be dedicated. So Jesus would have been about six weeks old at this time when Simeon took him up into his long-expecting arms. Lord, verse 29, Lord, now, picture this. Picture the old man, Simeon, holding the six-week-old Jesus. Lord, now, You are letting your servant depart in peace. And the the emphasis here is on the word now. You see, up until that moment, Simeon, though a godly man, was an incomplete man because there was more for him to know and experience, and he knew it, and he longed for it. And when laying his eyes upon Jesus, all the long years of waiting culminated in a sense of wholeness. For he was now at peace, and all was well with his soul. For my eyes have seen your salvation, he continues. Here was Jesus, and all he represented, even as an infant, wrapped up in the life of this child, was all the might and love and wisdom of God to reach a world of sadness and pain and misery brought on by sin. How could the arrival of that single child prepare that old man for his death? Because hope had come. And when one is submitted to the Savior, one is satisfied in the Savior. Just think about what Simeon must have felt when he held that child in his arms. Suddenly, everything came into focus. Everything was going to be okay. Every hope, every prayer, every fear, every longing, every need would ultimately be satisfied in that Christ child. Simeon's expression of peace, that he could now depart in peace, was in actuality an expression of faith in Christ. And like Simeon, we must trust him too. When feeling alone, he is with us. When we hurt, he is our physician. When facing life's storms, he is the anchor and assurance we seek. When we're empty, He is bread from heaven. When we go to God, He is the gate. When we need guidance, He is the good shepherd who leads us. When doubt threatens us, He is trustworthy and true. When despair overwhelms us, He empathizes and weeps. When death itself comes calling, He is the resurrection and the life. When we are lost, He is the way. When we are deceived, He is the truth. When we are without purpose, He is the life we need. When on shaky ground, He is the rock. When bound in sin, He is the Redeemer. When needing sustenance, He is the true vine. Hear me. When falsely accused, He is our advocate. When guilty, He is our righteousness. When blinded by sin, He is the light of the world. Think back. 
Think back to when you first saw the light of Christ, to those days when the love and grace and mercy of God, all of which speak to limitless hope, first shone upon you in their full brilliance. For me, it was like a veil removed and a burden lifted, though obviously the circumstances were much different. I can absolutely relate with Simeon's declaration of faith and peace in the Lord. It was all well with my soul. But this isn't my story only. Just as it wasn't Simeon's only. For God has prepared salvation in the presence of all peoples, verse 31. Salvation in the Savior is the testimony of countless souls throughout the world from one generation to the next. I want you to know there are people in this room sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you, and across from you, who can testify to such things. Jesus is the light of hope. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. Jesus came to accomplish far more than Israel's nationalistic dreams. He came to reveal God's saving purposes to people everywhere, including those who hadn't a clue. You know, in Scripture, all peoples basically refers to two general groups of people. There are the people of Israel who, beginning with Abraham, God chose to be a people unto Himself, and then there is everyone else. Namely, those who aren't born into Israel and are referred to in Scripture as Gentiles. Simeon knows this isn't just about him. About his own consolation only. He knows it's not about Israel only. And merely the consolation of Israel. By the Holy Spirit, he knows and understands that all peoples need consolation because all have sinned and therefore all suffer under sin's misery. Israel holds a special place, absolutely, because they were uniquely chosen to be the people through whom the Savior came. That it, This is their glory, but by God's grace, the glory of Christ extends to the far reaches of the world and shines upon us all. The first words of creation were what? Let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. When sin entered the world at the fall of humankind, even then the first light of salvation was seen as God spoke of the one who would one day come. And though sin multiplied and spread from one person to the next, the light of God's promised redemption remained sure and steady The prophets spoke of the day when people living in darkness would see a great light. And then when Jesus was born, indeed, the night sky became as day as a choir of angels declared the good news of his birth. He grew from infancy into adulthood and began to minister publicly, living as the perfect man while revealing the truth and grace of God. I am the light of the world He once declared, whoever follows me 
will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Bible says that God, who spoke light out of darkness in the beginning, now shines the light of Christ into our darkened souls. It's no wonder Joseph and Mary marveled at what Simeon was saying. Their own hearts were flooded by this light. And so the final section, verses 33 and 34, moves from their response to our own. It moves from how Simeon responded to Jesus to how people respond to Jesus today. We're told that Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Joseph and Mary were blessed for sure. Yet their unique blessing of being the earthly parents of the Son of God came with a degree of pain as well, which would be like a sword thrust through Mary's own soul, as verse 35 says parenthetically. Hers would be the anguish of a loving mother as she surrendered her son to a life of scrutiny and rejection and death. She and Joseph would see and experience themselves the refusal of so many to accept Jesus for the heaven-sent Savior He was and is. And in this way, Jesus was appointed for opposition, appointed for the fall and rising of many, a sign from God that men and women, just like us, would refuse to heed. Certainly the people of Israel were divided in their response to Jesus, But the division that marked Israel marks us all. And consider what this says about the love of Christ and God our Father and the Holy Spirit also in their shared desire to save. God knew how we would rebuff and refuse His kindness and overtures of grace, yet still He pursues us, and to us He sends His beloved and eternal Son, His only Son, who is the only means of salvation from sin and condemnation. Jesus would be sneered at, spoken against, rejected, and killed. Though sinless, He would die a sinner's death. Condemned, He would bear our sin in our place. Determined, He would drink the cup of God's wrath and justice to the bitter end. Faithful, He would give up His life to give us life. Victorious, He would rise up from the dead to ensure that we will too, if we will but place our trust in Him and in His saving work alone. Oh, but the human heart is so fickle and stubborn and so resistant to grace. The reason why people oppose Jesus is because the heart, terribly affected by sin's curse, is fundamentally opposed to God. 
And according to verse 35, Jesus was appointed for opposition so that the thoughts of the heart would be revealed. If I could apply that to us today, I would say that Jesus was appointed for these things so that the thoughts of your heart would be revealed. In his recently published Advent devotional, author Paul David Tripp talks about how we human beings are very skilled and very committed, very determined, self-swindlers. A swindler is someone who lies and deceives in order to get what they want. We swindle ourselves, Tripp suggests, when we minimize our sin, when we doubt the wisdom of God's law, when we concern ourselves more with the sin in others than the sin in ourselves, and when we deny what's in our hearts. Sin, you see, is not just a behavioral problem. It's a condition of the heart that affects who we are. It's not just that we sin. It's that we are sinners. But the grace of God made available in Jesus Christ is such that not only does it address our behavior by way of divine forgiveness, but also moves to change our hearts by way of genuine transformation. When the wrong in our hearts is revealed, we all react in one of two basic ways. Hear this. Either we refuse to admit it and stubbornly shun grace, or we own up to who we are apart from Christ to instead embrace grace. And the way to embrace God's grace toward us is to receive His Son whom He has given in love. The difference between those who fall and those who rise simply is a matter of the heart. So who has your heart this morning? Those who respond to Jesus in repentance and faith are given new hearts, we're told, spiritually speaking. They are raised from death to life, forgiven and restored But those who respond to Jesus with refusal and rejection and apathy and indifference and hardness of heart remain in their fallen state, condemned in their own sins by their own sinful nature through their own neglect to grab hold of him who has come to save. The Bible says, to all who did receive him, to them who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. I think the greatest Christmas irony, certainly the saddest, 
is that so many people are caught up in the familiar story of Christ's birth, yet they neglect to recognize their own need for Him. Often lost in our telling of the Christmas story is the reason why the story exists at all. It is more than a baby in a manger. It's about what God has done in love to get to the heart of our problem, and getting to the heart of our problem certainly reveals His heart, but it also reveals ours too. How you respond to Jesus, either in trust or denial, and those are essentially the only two options, How you respond to Jesus, hear this, how you respond to Jesus reveals more about who you are than anything else in your life. So the source of hope is the promises of God. The arrival of hope is the birth of Christ. And our response to hope is our response to Christ. Because hope that rests solely on Jesus is surely satisfied in Jesus. I thought about how to apply these things in one or two or three quick nuggets. But the truth is is that Christmas is not about adding a few things to enhance your life. It's really about just entrusting your life to Him who gives you life. It's not about observing a holiday. It's about embracing a person. And so on this Christmas Eve morning, I think my application, my suggested application is simply this, to be like Simeon. Hope in the Lord as he did with patient expectation. Be on the look for the Lord as he was in the everydayness of life. Whatever your story or circumstance, take hold of the Lord, even as Simeon did, and find In Jesus, the peace, the peace, the true and abiding peace that your soul so needs and longs for. May God bless you. Amen. Father, we thank you for these moments. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for hope in Christ. Thank you that our hope is sure. I would pray for each of these folks here. I'd I'd ask that you'd impress these truths upon their hearts. I, I pray and trust that you would reveal their hearts, including my own. I pray that you will help us to see, by way of the Holy Spirit, help us to see where our hearts are holding back or where we've given our hearts over to someone or something else. And I pray that you would give us the grace to... Repent and return to you and surrender to you and to embrace your gift of love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that for us? Would you bless and encourage our Christmas celebrations that they indeed would be a celebration of 
this one, this Christ. We look to you for all things good. For you are good in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.